Matthew chapter 25, we turn our attention this morning to a new chapter, uh, but not a new theme. Uh, Jesus is continuing with the same point, pressing the issue more deeply into our hearts of his pending return and the absolute importance of being prepared for his return. For those of you who were here a year and a half ago to hear it, I have to say that the text before us this morning will remind you, the sensation will remind you of the chill that ran up our spines when we heard Jesus predict the day when people will rush up to him at the judgment and are claiming to be his people and even offering potential evidence to prove that they are his people only to be told by Jesus, away from me, I never knew you. Apparently, this point is a very important one, judging from the fact that Matthew was led by the Holy Spirit to include it near the beginning of the gospel, and now to include it near the end of the gospel as well. And clearly, the point is important to the Savior, to God the Son, repeating it as He is. And for that reason, let us sit up and listen carefully to what the Scripture has to say once we've made our appeal to God the Father for His help. Father, we ask that You will send Your Spirit, that we may hear the voice of Your Son. And uh, if need be, that we may shudder, that we may repent and turn truly to him, we pray that you will grant us genuine faith and that we will settle for nothing less than that holiness that rises from the work of your Holy Spirit in a people who uh, willingly and happily yield themselves to him and engage with him in a life that glorifies you, that we may be ready for the coming of the King whenever that should be, perhaps before our heads hit the pillow tonight, perhaps in our lifetimes, perhaps a hundred lifetimes from now, whenever that is, that we may, Father, that we may have been everything that the Son has given His life to make us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there not, will, will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, 
And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Several weeks ago, I trained a new truck driver for the work that is my Friday hobby. And the night before, I had arranged with him by text that we were to meet in Utica and head for Scottsville, Kentucky at a particular time. Well, the next morning came, and and I went to the yard only to find myself alone. No problem. I went ahead and performed my pre-trip inspection and hooked the tractor to the trailer, checked the connections, thumped the tires, but I was still alone. So I pulled out the bills, and I started filling out the date and the other blanks ahead of time. Still no driver. And finally I called him, and the groggy voice on the other end of the line gave away the fact that he was still in bed and had been sound asleep. Now I'm getting a little bit irritated, but remembering that everyone there, especially the new drivers, know that I'm a Christian The dispatcher always warns the trainees that I'm a pastor. Uh, I held my peace. Finally, he shows up at the yard, jumps out of his pickup truck, and, and heads my way. I help him hook up his truck, but he reaches for the greasy connections with bare hands. Have you brought your gloves, I said. Well, no, I forgot them, so I gave him a pair of gloves. Uh, So... Let's work on some bills, I say. Let's see how you fill out the bills. Oh, oh, he says, uh, don't have a pen. So I give him a, a pen. And uh, from my briefcase. Finally, we're ready to leave, and he's in the truck behind me, ready to head to Scottsville, his, him following me. Out we go, but he's held up in traffic, and soon he disappears from my mirror. So I pull off onto the shoulder, and and call his cell phone. Hey, I, I'm waiting for you up here. Uh, let's not get separated, okay? Oh, he says it's okay. You go ahead. I'll catch up with you. I know the way. Okay, if you're sure. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll see you in Scottsville. An hour and a half later, my telephone rings. It's the new driver. Hello? Yeah, uh, John, um, To get to Scottsville, you take I-69, right? (laughs) I-69? Where are you? Uh, Not sure, he says. What do the signs say? Well, there's a sign up here that says Madisonville. (laughs) As gently as I could, I asked if he had a map. Well, no, apparently he didn't. Failed to pack one of those, too. Of all the unprepared drivers I've trained over the years, I think he must have been the most unprepared, unpreparedest of them all. And look where it got him. 
his unpreparedness took him in pretty much the opposite direction of where he had expected, even hoped to be. Certainly the place I had hoped he might be an hour and a half later. You see, lack of preparation has consequences, doesn't it? Usually negative ones. They may even keep you from reaching your intended destination. But there are no consequences as terrible as the failure Jesus describes here in terms of a parable. The failure to reach the everlasting, eternal destination of heaven. You know, happily for our driver, you can get to Scottsville even from Madisonville. Although we wonder if anything good can come from Madisonville, don't we? But you can get to Scottsville from Madisonville. But for those who fail adequately to prepare and therefore fail to arrive at heaven on the judgment day, as Jesus points out, for them there is no getting in. There is no way to get from here to there. The door is forever shut. It is eternally barred. It's too late. Virgins, not truckers, is Jesus' choice of characters and a wedding feast, the setting. We're somewhat handicapped in our interpretation here of this parable by the fact that we know comparatively little about wedding customs in Judea in the Lord's day. Apparently, the wedding was not only a joyful but a protracted affair. The ceremony was in several parts. A procession from the house of the groom to the bride or some other place where the wedding occurred. And then a procession, usually to the groom's home. And, and then a great feast marked by great joy and music that could last for days. These young women were bridesmaids. They belonged to the bride's party. But not in our modern sense. Their role apparently was to greet the bridegroom on his route and escort him to the last festive occasion in procession. In this particular case, it was a torchlit procession. You could actually maybe better translate lamps there in the text as torches. And once he arrived and went in the door, uh, the door was shut. And there was no possibility of late access. So foolish virgins were shut out of the entire celebration. You know, not just one supper now, but the whole week or however long it lasted. Clearly enough, the point of the parable is that Christ is the bridegroom. A comparison already drawn earlier in the gospel, so nothing foreign to us. We saw this back in chapter 9 already. The procession is the great coming of Christ at the end of history and the wedding feast, the very thing that we anticipate at this table every week in this house. The grand opening of the new heavens and the new earth and glorious eternity thereafter. The crisis here, of course, is that five of the ten virgins were not prepared. They were not ready when the bridegroom appeared. Apparently, in this wedding tradition, it is possible sometimes for the groom to be delayed, and sometimes delayed for a long period of time. In the parable, he's so long delayed that the virgins actually fall asleep. All of them. That's not a problem, apparently. Not a problem that they fall asleep. That's not the issue. 
All ten of them fell asleep, the wise ones and the foolish. We've already been told by Jesus that there would be a delay in his return. No surprise there. He taught us as much, didn't he, in his comparison of the faithful and the wise uh, servants. Or servant, possibly. And he will make the same point in the next parable, the parable of the talents. In fact, it's entirely reasonable, isn't it, to believe that Christians were likely wondering even when Matthew was writing this gospel, how long will it be before the Lord's return? And why hasn't it happened yet? But life goes on, doesn't it? And, and uh, all the virgins fall asleep. We can't always stay awake, can we? The fault was not in their sleeping. That's not the problem. The fault, the failure, is in the foolish virgins to prepare for when the bridegroom shows up. By trimming their lamps, verse 7, Matthew means to indicate the re-oiling of their torches. The rag at the end of the torch in that day would be soaked in oil as fuel for the flame. But it would not take long for that oil to be consumed and the torch would start to flicker and to fail. And so it was important to be prepared with oil, with a supply of oil so that the torch could be re-soaked and continue to burn and continue to throw the necessary light. The wise virgins were the ones who had brought extra oil. Uh, the foolish ones had not. They were unprepared, and that is precisely the point of separation between them in the story. When the bridegroom appears at midnight, and by the way, midnight is deliberate, at least according to Augustine, who believed the reason why the bridegroom arrives at midnight is, is that uh, in the parables, precisely because midnight is the moment of least awareness, you know, a time that is not anticipated. I say when the bridegroom appears at midnight, five are prepared. The other five are sent scrambling in the darkness. Last minute trying to find a, you know, open 7-Eleven somewhere, uh, the local oil dealer, to get their oil for their dry lamps. And while they're scrambling in the darkness, the prepared ones are celebrating. You know, they're, they're off in procession with the bridegroom. They're heading all together to the, into the house of feasting and of light. And by the time the unprepared girls reach the door, it's locked. And it's too late. It's locked and barred. And though they cry out, Lord, Lord, just like the people did in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, remember? Also, as in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord gives this answer. Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. As in nearly all of Jesus' parables, there are surprises. And uh, there are some surprises here. And isn't it true, as we've seen, it's so often in the surprise that the lesson is found and driven home to our hearts. Dear flock, I ask you to pay very careful and close attention now to the lessons of this parable. 
it gives me a sick feeling at the bottom of my stomach to imagine that any one of you might be found outside that door saying, Lord, Lord, and hear the words, I never knew you. It makes me sick to think and it causes me dread to imagine myself among them. I'm preaching to myself as much as I am to you. And I don't think I've ever preached a more serious sermon than this. First, take note of this surprising fact. All of these girls look exactly the same. They're obviously not the same. Of course they're not. But who of us could have distinguished between them in the dark, in the dark hours that preceded the appearance of the groom? The parable of the wise and foolish virgins has long been viewed, at least in our Protestant and Puritan tradition, as one of, if not the Bible's most emphatic and important statement on the subject of nominal faith. That entire tradition of which we're descendants here at Christ Presbyterian Church saw this parable as the Bible's supreme study of the difference between true and nominal Christianity. Between true and nominal Christians. You've heard of nominal Christianity before. I know you have. You've heard it here. Nominal means in name only. In name only. A nominal Christian is a person, a Christian, who appears to be a genuine believer. But it's really only imitating faith. It's a phony faith, the likes of which we've been studying during our uh, evening services in the book of James. Though such faith may appear on the surface to be true, uh, it cannot stand the scrutiny of the last judgment. But in the meantime, and this is what strikes us right from the beginning of this parable, the two are nearly indistinguishable. You know, as this parable opens, they all look, this is an emphatic point of the text, they all look alike. They all share so much in common. But by the end, they are separated eternally. What are they? Who are they? They are us. They are church members. They are Christians. They are members of the Christian church. They've been baptized in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. These are this parable is not about atheists versus Christians. This is not about Muslims versus Christians. It's not about Hindus versus, or Jews. These virgins, all of them, all ten of them, are professing Christians. They are members of the church. They all know who the bridegroom is. They all go out to meet him. They all have torches. They all want to sit at the banquet. And they all expect to find themselves seated in the banquet. Every one of them. This is the frightening thing about nominal Christians and the point that makes my blood run cold. 
as I measure the reality of my own faith and the admixture in my own heart. Nominal Christians even think that they are what they claim to be, real Christians. They fool even themselves, like these foolish virgins. They're caught off guard. They will be caught off guard. They're first embarrassed that they're not equipped as they should be, and then, then irretrievably locked out of the kingdom. And only at the end is the difference clearly to be seen. Dear ones, hear me. Even as I say this to myself, let us be careful. Let us be thoughtful. Let us be intentional about this matter. Let us not be content merely to think ourselves Christians. Lots of people do. But merely thinking we are Christians will not save us. Let us not imagine that just because we're members of a Christian church that eternity is secured for us, nor that merely attending worship services or even assenting mentally to uh, doctrines of salvation will avail to open the door of glory to us. Even professing faith alone does not save a person. It's not merely professing faith, but possession of faith, of genuine faith, real, living faith that saves. Second, take note of the second surprise in the parable, and that is that there are some things that you cannot borrow. There are some things you cannot borrow. Did it strike you as remarkable, maybe even distasteful, when the foolish virgins begged oil from the five wise virgins that the wise ones refused? I mean, doesn't it make true Christians in the story look like selfish snobs? Go get your own oil, they say, in effect. Jesus wonderfully takes care of that by putting a gem of truth on their lips in answer to the demand of the fools. No, they say, because there will not be enough for us and you. Now, it's a technical truth in the parable that if they had divided the oil, instead of the five of them finding their way to the feast, how many of them would have gotten there? None of them would have gotten there, right? Not a single one of them. They all would have run out of oil, and they all would have been left out in the dark. But that's the technical truth of the parable. But it's a fixed truth in the economy of salvation that you cannot borrow from others what is lacking in yourself. Which leads us to ask, of course, what it was that was lacking. In, in other words, what is this oil? What, what's the oil all about? What is it that Jesus is saying we must have in order to enter the kingdom of heaven? The lack of which will surely leave us locked out. That's the question, isn't it? What does the oil stand for? Now, there have been a few different uh, understandings of it over the years. Uh, some have said that it doesn't stand for anything. 
It's simply a detail of the story. It's just a, a part of the local color in this parable, and, and that it fundamentally uh, is this parable is simply about being ready. The oil has no special significance, but of course that interpretation just leaves us right where it found us, doesn't it? You know, asking, well, well, what then does it mean to be prepared? A second interpretation is that the oil stands for the Holy Spirit. Specifically, it refers to the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration, of giving us new birth, new birth to dead sinners. That does not seem like an entirely unreasonable understanding, does it? Or uh, does it? Or explanation, given that the Holy Spirit in his ministry is elsewhere described in the Bible as in terms of oil. Remember, Jesus himself was said to be anointed with the Holy Spirit. And anointing in those days was performed by pouring oil on the head. And Christians are said to be anointed, aren't we? Paul says God anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And in both cases, anointing, pouring of oil is used as a picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon a person and doing his work in that person. But if you take the parable now in its context, that is, with consideration to the text before and after, the emphasis here in Matthew, as you well know, is on obedience. It's on obedience, on the holiness of a true follower of Jesus as demonstrated by his or her love and service to the Lord. The rest of this chapter is going to be full of that, isn't it? Including the description Jesus gives of the final judgment when the sheep and the goats are separated from each other eternally. Do you remember the basis on which Jesus separates the sheep from the goats? Remember what the distinction is? What the difference is between the sheep and the goats that is the basis of their judgment? It's their lives, it's their obedience or their disobedience. It is, in a word, their works. Their holiness in terms of obedience to the will of God. The love they exercise toward God is demonstrated by the love they exercise toward others is what makes the difference, the distinction. Now, that hardly surprises us because, again, Jesus made that very same point, and he made it over and over again, as we saw back in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, back there in chapter 7, Jesus specifically states that it is a failure to do the Master's will that seals the fate of nominal Christians who cry out to him, Lord, Lord, but who will forever be shut out of the kingdom of God. What's the difference, Jesus said? The difference is simply this. They did not do the will of the Father. And do you remember the next thing Jesus said? At that time, he then went on to deliver another parable. And in that parable, there were also wise people and foolish people. They were builders. The wise man built his house upon the rock. How so? Well, you remember, it's by not only hearing, but doing the Word of God. 
the words of Jesus. It's the doing of Christ's word that separates the wise from the foolish, both there in the Sermon on the Mount and here in the parable of the ten virgins. It is the love of Jesus in your heart that translates into obedience to his commands in your life, springing from a true heart. That's the distinction. What is the difference between the nominal Christian and the true Christian? It is a truly, genuinely holy life of love and good works that is the overflow of a true heart. Or to put it in terms of our evening studies in James these days, it is a living faith. And that's why it can't be borrowed. And it can't even be shared. The true faith of the Christian next to you, you cannot borrow. You cannot count on the fact that you rub shoulders with true Christians. You cannot count on the fact that you are able to look like true Christians. That you sing the same hymns as true Christians, with true Christians. I say you cannot count these things as your own oil. You cannot count on heaven based on your friend's holiness. You cannot count and uh, be assured of a future and glory based on your parents' holiness. You cannot ride your pastor's holiness or your elder's holiness or your children's holiness. That's their oil, not yours. And they cannot make it yours, no matter how much even they might want to make it so. You must have your own oil, living and active faith. You must have that holiness without which, the writer of Hebrews says, no one will see the Lord. You must have this oil if you will be prepared for the coming of the bridegroom at midnight or else. And herein lies the third surprise. It will be too late. There's a time it is too late. That's a terrible reality. When the job has been lost, it's too late to protest that you'll work harder. You know, when the exam bell rings, it's too late to study. And when the end comes, it's too late for holiness. It's too late. Dear ones, there's a great party coming. There is an amazing party coming. We've made the mistake, and we pastors have failed you by causing heaven to sound sometimes something like an unending choir rehearsal, you know, on the clouds. Let me tell you that it is amazing, and it begins with a feast 
feast of food and drink that will make the best filet that you have ever put in your mouth in this life seem like a cold McDouble with cheese <laughs> by comparison. The next life holds pleasures beyond our telling of laughter and love and joy unending, tearless forever. Don't miss it. Don't miss this, dear ones. Don't miss that party. Prepare for it today and every day with the oil of holiness, of love for God above all, and of your neighbor as self. No presumption for you. No presuming like those foolish virgins. Only wise preparation because the Lord comes. He comes. Though we know not the day or the hour, our Lord comes.